Welcome to the last month at the Federal Circuit, a look at recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the intellectual property community. Our guest today is Finnegan partner Jason Romrell. Jason, thanks for joining us. Let's begin with Buxalta versus Genentech, an August 27th decision, which addresses a lower court's ruling on claims construction. Jason, can you first just give us some background on the patent at issue in that case? Absolutely. So Boxalta sued Genentech in the Dis- Delaware District Court, asserting that Genentech's Hemlibra product, which is used to treat the blood clotting disorder hemophilia, infringed claims 1, 4, 17, and 19 of its 590 patents. Now, blood clotting occurs in the body through a series of enzymatic activations known as the coagulation cascade. And one key step in the cascade is when an enzyme known as an activated clotting factor 8 complexes with another enzyme known as activated clotting factor 9 to form this complex that then activates factor 10. In hemophilia A, a particular form of hemophilia, the activity of this factor 8 is functionally absent, and that impedes the coagulation cascade. So this can occur in some hemophilia A patients because they develop factor VIII inhibitors, that is, antibodies that work against this factor VIII. And unfortunately, these factor VIII inhibitors hinder the effectiveness of factor VIII preparations administered as treatments for hemophilia. Now, the 590 patent relates to preparation used to treat hemophilia patients who have developed factor VIII inhibitors. The preparations and the patent comprise antibodies or antibody fragments that bind to factor IX or activated factor IX to increase procoagulant activity of activated factor IX to compensate for this decreased factor VIII activity. Okay, and so what was the argument about between the parties? So the parties disputed the construction of the terms antibody and antibody fragment in this patent, both of which were key terms in the asserted claims. Generally, antibodies are these Y-shaped structures that comprise two heavy chains, or H-chains, and two light chains, which are called L-chains. An antibody that has two identical H-chains and two identical L-chains is called monospecific because each HL-chain pair binds the exact same antigen. Bispecific antibodies, like Genentech's product and Libra, have different heavy chains and or different light chains which allows them to bind two different antigens. Boxalta argued antibodies should be construed as a molecule having a specific amino acid sequence comprising two heavy chains, H chains, and two light chains, or L chains. But Genentech argued the antibodies should be instead construed as an immunoglobulin molecule having a specific amino acid sequence that only binds to the antigen that induces synthesis or very similar antigens, consisting of two identical heavy chains, and two identical light chains. Okay, so what did the district court decide? So the district court determined that the term antibody standing alone, without other structural terms, can have different meanings to those skilled in the art, and that both Boxalta's and Genentech's proposed constructions were acceptable definitions. But ultimately, the district court found that the patentee had chosen Genentech's narrower definition by expressly defining antibodies in column five of the specification, where it describes antibodies as immunoglobulin molecules consisting of two types of polypeptide chains, identical heavy chains and two light, also identical chains or L chains. Now, to be sure, the district court also recognized that the 590 patent claims and discloses bispecific antibodies 
which do not have identical heavy and light chains, and immunoglobulin M and immunoglobulin A antibodies, which can have more than two heavy chains and more than two light chains. But according to the district court, these claimed embodiments were antibody derivatives rather than actual antibodies. The district court likewise dismissed the inconsistency between Genentech's definition of antibody and at least dependent claims 4 and 19, which expressly claimed bispecific antibodies as insufficient to overcome what it considered to be this definitional language in column 5 of the patent. So the district court ultimately adopted Genentech's construction, construing antibody as an immunoglobulin molecule having a specific amino sequence that only binds to the antigen that induced its synthesis or very similar antigens consisting of two identical heavy chains or H chains and two identical light chains or L chains. Now, also to support its construction, the district court relied on an amendment that Buxalta made during prosecution of the 590 patent. Original claim one recited an antibody or antibody derivative and original dependent claim four recited a list of antibodies or antibody derivatives according to claim one, including, among other things, bispecific antibodies. During prosecution, the examiner rejected the term antibody derivatives as not being enabled for any one of the enumerated lists in dependent claim four. And then based on the examiner's suggestion, the patentee amended the claims to recite antibody fragment in place of antibody derivative, and the examiner removed the enablement objection. The district court determined that this amendment amounted to a disclaimer of antibody derivatives, including bispecific antibodies, except for antibody fragments specifically. And how did the court address the other disputes? So the parties also disputed the construction of the term antibody fragment. Boxalta proposed that the term be construed as a portion of a molecule having a specific amino acid sequence comprising two heavy chains and two light chains. Genentech, however, argued that it should instead be construed as a fragment of an antibody, which partially or completely lacks the constant region. And also the definition included that the term antibody fragment excludes all other forms of antibody derivatives. Now, relying on a portion of this written description reciting that antibody fragments partially or completely lack the constant region, and then identifying examples of fragments, the district court construed antibody fragment as a fragment of an antibody which partially or completely lacks the constant region, further including that the term antibody fragment excludes bispecific antibodies. In other words, essentially accepting Genentech's proposed construction. And based on the district court's constructions, the party stipulated to non-infringement of the asserted claims of the 590 patent. And Boxalta appealed, arguing that the district court erroneously construed the terms antibody and antibody fragment. And before we get to that federal circuit decision, we should note that the three-judge panel that was reviewing the lower court decision was reviewing a decision by one of their own, Judge Timothy Dyke, who was sitting by designation in Delaware. How unusual is that? That's right. So Judge Dyke was sitting by designation in the District of Delaware and has done so several times, actually. The District of Delaware in particular has always been a very popular and busy forum for patent cases, and that has only increased since the Supreme Court's ruling in T.C. Heartland. But like many districts, Delaware has had unfilled vacancies on the bench, making it difficult to handle such a large volume of cases. And to help alleviate that burden in Delaware, several judges from other districts and even circuit judges have sat by designation in Delaware, including Judge Dyke. Several other federal circuit judges have also sat by designation in district courts in the past, including Judge Bryson in Delaware and Texas, as well as Judge Rader when he was on the court. Of course, when 
federal circuit judges sit by designation in district courts, it creates an interesting dynamic when their decisions arrive on appeal at the federal circuit for their colleagues to review. And so what did Judge Dyke's colleagues make of his claims construction ruling? In the panel opinion authored by Judge Moore and joined by Judge Plager and Judge Wallach, the Federal Circuit held that Judge Dyke erred in construing the terms antibody and antibody fragment and therefore vacated the judgment of non-infringement and remanded for further proceedings. So first, the panel noted that nothing in the plain language of Claim 1 limits the term antibody to a specific antibody consisting of two identical heavy chains or two identical light chains or an antibody that only binds the antigen that induces synthesis or very similar antigens. The panel explained that the dependent claims confirm that antibody is not two identical heavy chains and two identical light chains. For example, dependent claim four recites the antibody or antibody fragment according to claim one, wherein said antibody or antibody fragment is selected from the group consisting of a chimeric antibody, a humanized antibody, and a bispecific antibody, among others. The panel observed that each of these claimed antibodies falls outside of the district court's construction because each does not only bind to the antigen that induces synthesis or very similar antigens. A bispecific antibody also does not satisfy the district court's construction of antibody because a bispecific antibody does not consist of two identical H chains and two identical L chains. And dependent claim 19 further limits claims one and four by claiming that the antibody is a humanized antibody, which again, does not fall within the district court's construction of antibody. Now, because the district court's construction excluded these embodiments, the panel held that it was inconsistent with the plain language of these dependent claims. The district court also acknowledged this inconsistency in its opinion, but nevertheless held that the proper result here was invalidation of the inconsistent claims rather than an expansion of the independent claims. But the panel disagreed with that reasoning, holding instead that the plain language of these dependent claims weighs heavily in favor of adopting Boxalta's broader claim construction. The panel recognized that the district court's reading of column five was establishing a narrow definition of the term antibody and even agreed that it was a plausible reading of that excerpt in isolation to say that it was creating a definition. But the panel noted that claim construction requires that we consider the specification as a whole and read all portions of the written description if possible in a manner that renders the patent internally consistent. And when considered in the context of the remainder of the written description and the claims, the panel read the excerpts in column five as only a generalized introduction to antibodies rather than a definitional statement. Now, beyond column five, the written description provided specific disclosures regarding bispecific, chimeric, and humanized antibodies. For example, in claim six, the written description explained specifically that the inventive antibodies could comprise bispecific antibodies. Both parties agreed that these bispecific antibodies do not consist of two identical H chains and two identical L chains. And how did the court address the patent prosecution history in this case? As for the prosecution history, the panel noted that the district court's analysis had really centered around the patentee's amendment, substituting the term antibody fragment for antibody derivative at the examiner's suggestion to overcome an enablement rejection. Because the panel rejected the premise that column five was definitional, though, it did not view the prosecution history as sufficiently clear and unmistakable to overcome the broader meaning of antibody discerned from the claims and from the right description as a whole. But even more, the panel noted that the district court's determination that the patentee had disclaimed bispecific antibodies by amending its claims 
was really at odds with the examiner's subsequent allowance of dependent claims, such as dependent claim four, which explicitly claims a bispecific antibody. Thus, the panel construed antibody as an immunoglobulin molecule having a specific amino acid sequence comprising two heavy chains and two light chains with no requirement that either pair be identical. And addressing the next term, antibody fragment, the panel again agreed with Boxalta that the district court's construction improperly excluded bispecific antibodies and imported limitations from the writ description, noting that the standard for lexicographer in pad drafting is, is quite exacting. The panel held that the written descriptions use of terms like may also include, such as, etc., made clear that the patentee did not intend to define antibody fragments as necessarily partially or completely lacking a constant region. And accordingly, the panel construed the term antibody fragment to mean a portion of an antibody, that is, a portion of an immunoglobulin molecule having a specific amino acid sequence comprising two heavy chains or two light chains. And because the district court's uh, claim construction was erroneous, the panel vacated the judgment of non-infringement and remanded for further proceedings. Okay, we'll step back here for a second. What stands out to you in this decision, Jason? This decision really highlights how difficult it can be to balance competing canons of claim construction. There is often tension between certain portions of a specification that appear to define critical terms and the specification as a whole. I think the Boxalta decision underscores that in resolving those tensions, a reading that renders the patent internally consistent is typically preferred. And while some portions of the patent or the prosecution may at first blush appear to limit particular terms, it may not be appropriate to import those limitations into the claims if they conflict with the express language of dependent claims. I think this case also underscores that for prosecution disclaimer to attach, the disavowal really must be both clear and unmistakable. Ambiguous statements with will typically not give rise to prosecution disclaimer, especially if there's another plausible explanation for the amendment. Of course, claim construction is not always a straightforward task. While reversal rates have dropped significantly after the Federal Circuit's Ombach Phillips decision, Claim construction is still often a point of contention on appeal. And as the interesting posture of this case highlights, the Federal Circuit can and does disagree on what the correct claim construction is. Very interesting. So let's turn to another decision, this one covering inventorship, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute versus Ono Pharmaceutical Company, which was decided actually in July. What was in dispute in this case, Jason? Sure. So... Ano's patents claim methods of treating cancer by administering antibodies that target either the PD-1 receptor or its PD-L1 ligand and block the receptor ligand interaction. And the patents issued with four scientists identified as co-inventors, including one named Honjo. And the issue in the case was whether two additional scientists, Freeman and Wood, should also be deemed co-inventors of those patents. So obviously the history of the invention is crucial here. What's the backstory? Hanja worked at Kyoto University in the 1990s and discovered the PD-1 receptor. Using a knockout mouse model, he and a colleague demonstrated that the receptor was involved in immune system inhibition and published their work in August 1999 in a publication called Immunity. In 1998, Hanjo met with Wood, who was then a researcher at the Genetics Institute, who believed that the PD-1 receptor could be a candidate for antibody therapy development. Hanjo and Wood began collaborating to identify the PD-1 ligand. And in fact, Hanjo shared PD-1 reagents in a confidential draft 
of the immunity article with Wood. Meanwhile, earlier in 1998, a researcher at Dana-Farber by the name of Freeman identified the 292 sequence as a potential PD-1 ligand. The three scientists then began sharing information. Wood and Freeman worked together and determined that PD-1 binds to 292 sequence and informed Hanjo as much. The three scientists dubbed the 292 sequence PDL1 and Hanjo and sent Wood anti-PD-1 antibodies for further experimentation. Now, at this point, Freeman contacted Hanjo proposing a possible collaboration researching the PD-1, PDL1 pathway. And in the meeting in October 1999, Wood disclosed that PD-1, PDL1 antibodies inhibited the PD-1, PDL1 interaction. Freeman disclosed that the 292 sequence was from a human ovarian tumor, and Hanjo disclosed his unpublished knockout mouse data, indicating that PD-1 inhibits the immune response. Now, after this meeting, Freeman and Wood filed a provisional application, but they did not list Hanjo as a co-inventor on that application. The three scientists then worked together on a journal article about PD-L1, and in the final round of edits in April 2000, Freeman added a sentence to the article stating that PD-L1 was also expressed in cancers and that some tumors might use PD-L1 to inhibit an anti-tumor immune response. By May 2000, Wood, Freeman, and Hanjo were discussing the development of anti-PD-L1 antibodies and the possible use of those antibodies in treating cancer. In October 2000, another inventor by the name of EY, a named co-inventor on the patents that eventually issued in this case, generated data in knockout mice, suggesting that mouse melanoma tumors expressing PDL1 grow faster than tumors without that expression. Anno identified this as the point in time where the four named inventors jointly conceived of the claimed inventions. As more data were generated after October 2000, Hanjo eventually stopped sharing results with Freeman and Wood. However, the three met one final time in April 2001. And in 2002, Hanjo filed a patent application in Japan that did not include Freeman and Wood as co-inventors. All of the patents at issue in this case claim priority to this Japanese patent application. Dana-Farber filed suit in the District of Massachusetts seeking to add Freeman and Wood as co-inventors on Hanjo's U.S. patents under Section 256B. Okay, so how did the district court make sense of all the contributions? The district court credited several contributions as significant to the conception of all six patents, including Freeman's and Wood's discovery of the PD-1 ligand, Wood's discovery that PD-1, PD-L1 inhibits the immune response, several other discoveries. And accordingly, the district court ordered that Freeman and Wood be added as co-inventors to the patented issue. Anno predictably appealed to the federal circuit, arguing that the work done by Freeman and Wood did not rise to the level of inventive contributions, really because their experiments were done in vivo and were too far removed from the claimed methods of treatment. The patents at issue were issued over Freeman and Wood's 1999 provisional application that they had filed on their own. And their work with Hanjo had been published in October 2000 before the conception of the patent inventions in this case. And so what did the Federal Circuit decide? So in an opinion authored by Judge Lurie and joined by Judges Newman and Judge Stoll, the Federal Circuit affirmed the district court's decision. Now, the panel began its analysis by noting that under 35 U.S.C. Section 116A, inventors may apply for a patent jointly, even though they did not work together at or at the same time each did not make the same type or amount of contribution, or each did not make a contribution to the subject matter of every claim of the patent. 
Now, applying this standard, the court concluded that Anno was proposing an unnecessarily heightened requirement for inventorship. The court noted that the statute and the federal circuit case law makes clear that joint inventors need not contribute to all aspects of the invention, and that to claim co-inventorship, Freeman and Wood did not need to be present for or to have participated in all experiments that led to the conception of the claimed invention, as long as they made inventive contributions throughout their collaboration with Hanjo. The Federal Circuit also pointed out that although EY's work provided important in vivo data, in vivo verification is not required for a conception to be definite and permanent. In this case, EY's work was conducted after Friedman had already shown expression of PDL1 in human tumors, and thus the Federal Circuit concluded that PDL1's potential utility in treating human cancers was developed jointly with Freeman before EY's work. And in rejecting Anu's argument that Freeman's and Wood's contributions were not relevant to the claimed invention because the Hanjo patents were issued over the Freeman and Wood provisional application filed in 1999, the Federal Circuit stressed that joint inventorship does not depend on whether a claimed invention is novel or non-obvious over a particular researcher's contribution. The court also refused to create a categorical rule that research made public before the date of conception of a total invention cannot qualify as a significant contribution to conception of the total invention. The court noted that collaboration generally spans a period of time and may involve multiple contributions from multiple contributors, and that there is no principled reason to discount genuine contributions made by collaborators because portions of that work were published prior to conception for the benefit of the public. The court concluded that in this case, publication of a portion of the complex invention did not defeat joint inventorship of that invention. Anno also argued that the district court erred in several aspects of its factual analysis, but the federal circuit found that the district court's factual conclusions were not clearly erroneous, noting that even though Anno's view of the facts, knowledge of PD-1 itself was insufficient for Hanjo to conceive of the method claimed in the patents at issue. The federal circuit thus affirmed the district court's decision, concluding that discovery of PD-1 in a vacuum was insufficient for conception and that Freeman and Wood's work linking PD-1 to its ligand and expression in tumors was a significant contribution to each of the patent's conception. And Jason, what do you think this decision means in general for inventorship? Well, I think that patents resulting from collaborations among various researchers in different institutions can sometimes have joint inventorship issues. When an issued patent does not properly include all inventors, patent ownership may be impacted, which in turn impacts who has the right to make, use, offer to sell, and sell a claimed invention, as well as who is needed to enforce that patent. The Federal Circuit reiterated in this case that neither the relevant statute nor the case law requires each inventor to have made the same type or amount of contribution to be deemed a co-inventor. And this case also really underscores that for a patent reciting a method of treatment using an antibody against a novel target, researchers' contributions to conception are not merely limited to in vivo data if other work suggested the utility of the antibody for the recited treatment. And perhaps most importantly, a co-inventor's prior public disclosure of certain aspects of the invention does not necessarily negate his or her contributions to the claimed invention, as long as the prior public disclosure did not simply inform another about the state of the prior art. 
as the Federal Circuit explained here, inventorship of a complex invention may depend on partial contributions to conception over time. And there is no principled reason to discount genuine contributions made by collaborators because portions of that work were published prior to conception for the benefit of the public. And Jason, do you expect any legal fallout from this decision? In other words, do you think we'll see more claims to inventions? There might be. When naming co-inventors during prosecution, patent applicants need to be very careful to evaluate the contributions of each researcher to the claimed invention, including whether there was any contribution from earlier research that led to later verification of the conception and the nature of the researcher's collaboration. Dana-Farber really underscores that diligence concerning patent inventorship should be an important part of any transaction involving patent rights, including patent licensing, diligence, or the decision to invest in products derived from a joint research venture. After Dana-Farber, an accused infringer facing the threat of expensive litigation, a costly settlement, and potential damages might be more likely to consider challenging inventorship under Section 256, especially whereas here, a patent appears to be the product of a complex collaboration between multiple scientists. Licensing rights from a potential co-inventor could be a cost-effective litigation strategy. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jason. Really appreciate your insights. Thank you. Happy to join you. Our guest has been Jason Romrell, a partner at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.